Hi, Rin here at Commonwealth Holistic Herbalism. Just like last week, this time we've got a replay for you. This is episode number 145, originally aired on December 20th, 2020, and it's entitled An Herbalist's Guide to Successful Self-Experimentation. Enjoy, and we'll be back next week with a new episode for you. Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woohoo! Yeah. All right. Well, here we are with uh, our last episode for 2020. I think so. I think it is. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I'm really glad that we're getting to this topic before this year ends. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this is a very important subject. Today we're going to be talking about self-experimentation, uh, which is basically how do you make changes to your own health in a structured manner to figure out whether they're really working for you or not. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's worth mentioning that everything is an experiment, right? Like whatever it is that you're gonna try to feel better, whether it is um, eating differently or surgery or anything in between it is always an experiment. There's never any guarantees and we're not, everybody's different. So we're not going to know exactly how it works in your body until you try it. So it's really good to be thinking about what does it mean to try something? How do I know if it's working? All that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All that good stuff. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. But before we get into that, we just want to give you a quick reminder that we are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States, so these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everybody's body is different, so the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but we hope that they'll give you some good ideas to think about and some information to research further. Yeah, and we just want to remind you that good health is your right and your own personal responsibility. And this means that the final decision when you're considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by a physician, is always yours. Yes. And if you learn how to do your self-experimentation successfully, then uh, you'll be really taking control of that responsibility in that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what are we really talking about here? Um, it's very simple, right? When we make a diet change or a lifestyle change, you know, ideally we would have some guidance. We would have some experienced practitioner who could help us out and give us good ideas, but that's not always possible, right? Maybe they don't live near you. Um, you haven't found one that suits you yet. Uh, maybe there's something you're interested in, but there's not like a, a teacher for that, <laughs> for mm, that particular thing mm -hmm. or not one that, that you can find. Um, sometimes you hear a lot of good things about making a diet change uh, or, or a diet itself, you know, or an exercise routine or plan or whatever. Um, or maybe you just heard about this really amazing herb called nettles. And you thought, <laughs> hey, maybe I should uh, start drinking some nettle tea and see what happens. So you want to try it, right? But uh, anytime you do that, you basically are doing an experiment on yourself. So it's really simple. But at the same time, there are some pitfalls with self-experimentation, and that can cause you to come up with a confusing result or an incomplete uh, kind of data set there, or you might jump to a conclusion that's actually kind of unjustified. Um, and sometimes the, the risk here, you know, in, in air quotes, is very low, right? 
if you decide to start drinking ginger tea every day and <laughs> yeah. it doesn't solve all of your digestive problems forever, uh, then that's not going to be a big deal, right? It's uh, it's not it's not likely to create a new one for you. you right, know? right, right. Um, but with some things, you really want to know if it's going to be worth the effort or the energy or even the expense, you know? So we want to be aware of that. I think aware of that is the key. Like, I kind of think that what what you're really putting forward here is how do we create a system of awareness in our own bodies? Like, mm -hmm. how do we learn to be aware of what we're doing and what we're feeling? Um, especially because sometimes you say, I'm going to try a gluten-free diet because I've heard that it helps so much. But you don't really read the labels carefully and some gluten does sneak in. And then like on Friday at work, somebody brought in whatever. And so you do it for a couple of weeks. And at the end, without much awareness, you say, eh, that didn't really make much of a difference. But mm. you weren't being aware of the places where gluten got into the diet. And you didn't even maybe recognize that gluten and dairy have a lot of crossover. So like all of the all of those things, if we build a system to be aware of them, then our experimentation is going to be more valuable. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the it's kind of like two sides, right? We're trying to avoid false positives and false negatives yeah. <laughs> in a way, right? We're trying to not dismiss uh, something that's actually helping as ineffective because we're not perceiving the benefits that it's giving us. And we don't want to continue with something that's not helping or, you know, even worse is having some kind of, uh, you know, adverse effect, right? So, yeah, so we can prevent this, though, right? And the way we prevent it is we recognize potential mistakes or errors that we could make, and then we find some tools and strategies to help us to avoid those. Um, so there are, there are really valid concerns about doing self-experimentation and making a lot of uh, decisions based solely on, on your own you know, um, uh, perception of what you're experiencing. Um, the biggest problem uh, is the way that we... We, we lie to ourselves or we delude ourselves or, <laughs> or we have cognitive bias, right? We're susceptible to that. All of us are, um, even, even the ones who spend their whole lives studying and writing about these things, yep. um, are totally susceptible to this. And, and so this is just a part of being human, right? Yeah. Um, we need to kind of be aware of the way that our minds and our brains work in the world in order to, um, uh, be aware of failure points mm. and, uh, and pay special attention when we approach them. You know, so we don't want our self-experimentation to become self-justification. Um, we we want to uh, understand that self-experimentation um, it's it's not a matter of just saying, "Well, this is what feels good for me," and so I'm going to keep on doing it. <laughs> right? Mm. We need to be a little more a little more rigorous about it. Um, you know, we're not all trained to be scientists, and even the ones who are trained to be scientists don't follow the scientific method in every aspect of their lives. You know, it's very easy to, to lose sight of that. One of the ways that people comment on the, the failure mode here is to talk about this kind of work as N equals 1. And this is basically some language adopted from, like, scientific studies where... Um, you need to make a declaration at some point about how many people, or how many rodents, I suppose, were in the study that you were doing. Um, and so, you know, this term is used uh, to say how many participants were involved, right? So a, a study that had 42 people who were, who were you know, doing the, the intervention or the placebo or, or involved in it somehow, you call that N equals 42, right? Um, any self-experimentation, you would be inclined to call it N equals 1, 
But a lot of times that's also like a, a point of criticism and to say, oh, well, an n equals one experiment, that's really not an experiment at all. That's not data, that's just an anecdote, <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's only a single point. And that's, that's actually a fair critique as far as it goes, but it doesn't actually go far enough. Because the truth is that when you're doing a self-experiment, it's not really a n equals one situation because the n there, the number, is data points. It's not like uh, heads, you know? Right, so the data <laughs> points is actually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, n might equal 30 because you did it for 30 days. Experimentation, like everybody is different. So the experiment is not how many people did this work for. The experiment is, does it work in your body? And mm -hmm. so the N is, how many days of positive results did I see? Right. Or, or negative results or whatever, you know. Yeah. How, so for, how many days of data do I have? Right. So for our listeners who do, you know, research science and have these terms, this is the difference between a cross-sectional study and a longitudinal study, right? When we're doing this kind of intervention on ourselves, and we're collecting multiple data points, then we're doing this, this collection of data over time, right, longitudinally. Um, and that's, that's quite different. So that kind of changes the terms of what we're really talking about. And this is why I like to use the phrase self-experimentation, even though this idea of like the n equals one experiment is like pretty common out there in like paleo blogs and a lot of other, you know, kind of alternative health world discussions on the internet. Um, so, you know, the, the real key here, though, like I keep coming back to, is that if we have this immediate reaction to some kind of first feeling, like, I feel good when I eat pizza. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> it's <know>. delicious. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's not an experiment, right? That's, that's, you haven't done the work there, right? So there could be some delayed onset effects. There could be some invisible effects that isn't accounted for here. Like maybe you're feeling an endorphin response when you eat pizza because you don't know that you've got a dairy allergy, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And uh, maybe you're, there are some uh, invisible symptoms that are happening, like your immune system is attacking your own tissues, uh, you know, based on that kind of molecular mimicry. They, they're, you know, setting up this response where your immune system's trying to attack your lunch and instead it's attacking your body, right? So that might happen. Maybe it is that the, the effect is delayed. Like a lot of people with a, a food sensitivity, if they eat that thing, the symptom doesn't happen right away. It could be that the migraine is delayed by six hours or by a day. Or, or by a couple of days, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, if that happens, it might be hard to remember that the last three times that you had pizza, you had those same symptoms. Right, because <laughs> you had pizza on certain days and the migraine didn't happen until however many days later. And it's not easy to see that tie if you're not actually tracking your data. So we'd love to know for sure, and it'd be nice if we had some like perfectly objective, um, you know, thing that we could turn to that would have the answer for us. But that's not available. Um, and even if it was, it wouldn't be cheap. Wait, <laughs> I'm not certain that that would be good, actually, because like a perfectly objective thing is still not actually perfect. You can think about in order to be objective about nutrient quantity in broccoli, they took it to a laboratory and they do certain experiments to figure out how much magnesium is in the, or how many calories or how many this or how many that. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that the human body is not a laboratory and not all of that stuff translates directly to how the human body metabolizes that broccoli. And furthermore, even if it did, not every body metabolizes broccoli with perfect efficiency. Right. So 
so I almost feel like objective is not actually what we want to reach for. I think maybe honest, you know, <laughs> accuracy, like, like it is subjective by the very nature of it's your body. It is in you and not in somebody else necessarily. So I think that our goal can be like, um, not delusional, like not, uh, unbiased. That's the word. Instead of objective, <laughs> our goal can be, um, out, like awareness of bias and then correcting for a bias. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, there are some things that are concrete and that, that seem pretty universal, right? That trans fats are bad for humans that it's good if you eat green leafy vegetables, you know? <laughs> like, there are some things that we can say are pretty much... You shouldn't drink bleach. You know, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. But there are a lot of areas of health intervention we might make where there's a lot of individual variation and that that's much more important than any, any universal, right? Um, and those are the areas where self-experimentation is going to be the most helpful and where it's the most necessary, right? Um, we can't, like, rely on evidence that's, like, sparse and contradictory and disputed from studies, right? A one-size-fits-all prescription doesn't really make a lot of sense in a, in a situation like that. So some examples, right? How many grams of carbs per day makes my diet low-carb, right? Yeah. Um, for my body and a, and a sustainable amount of low-carb that's not making me too fatigued or having thyroid effects or whatever else, right? Um, can raw dairy be part of my personal paleo diet, right? I, not me, not Rin, but there are some people out there who it seems to work for them, you know? Um, should we avoid nightshades all the time or can I have some now and again? And how many, how many potato days is too many in a row? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, is white rice a safer starch than sweet potato for, again, for my body? Like always you have to add that, that contextualization for the individual, for, for you personally. There's not going to be consensus about this, these kinds of questions among. I, I mean, I bet you can find a study that will say how many potatoes it's safe to eat in one day, <laughs> but the, that just doesn't mean that that's like a good recommendation for how you're going to feel great in your body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, you know, there's either not consensus or it wasn't, it wasn't studied at all, or, or it's not something that, that can be answered in that way. Right. So again, there's high individual variation and in herbal medicine, this is the same thing, right? Uh, is valerian going to help me sleep really well, or is it going to make me stimulated and keep me awake? Is licorice in my tea blend going to raise my blood pressure? Uh, is skullcap or blue vervain a better herb for me to work with when I'm feeling anxious? You know, we as herbalists, we can see some factors that might make one or another of those answers more probable for one person in front of us, if we have some time to get to know them and how they work and everything. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, especially in, when you're doing this on your own, the interaction between plants and people can be surprising, you know, mm. it can be complex. There's a lot of factors going on. So yeah, if you're on your own and you want to get started, go ahead and try it. That's not a problem, but we can keep working to make these experiments more successful. So when we take the criticisms of the sort of like N equals one experiment or the self-justification process or whatever, they really come down to this argument. Um, so if you'll bear with me for a moment, I, I I studied uh, logic and, and philosophy a little bit in college and... A little bit, he says. I found it to be really helpful uh, for, for certain cases like this, especially when we're trying to see what we can do uh, with, with an, a line of thinking or an argument that we want to take apart. Um, honestly, most philosophy classes are about, how can we tear that idea down? How can we take this <laughs> argument and break it to pieces, you know? So um, if we... And because this is not a philosophy podcast... <laughs> 
I'm not going to say anything about that. But mm. I just want everybody to know that if this were a philosophy podcast, I would have some opinions. This was very Western philosophy training, you know, so, um, yeah, there's a particular mm. mode to it. But uh, but the idea here, the helpful idea is this, right? We can take this core argument from the, the critique of, oh, if you're, if you're not basing it on, like, real science TM, then it doesn't count. They say, self-experimentation relies on your own subjective experience. Your subjective experience is susceptible to cognitive bias, because you're a human. Cognitive bias leads to unchecked or incorrect conclusions. And so you basically line those up together. It's an if A, then B, if B, then C, if C, then D, therefore, if A, then D, right? You go down the line. It's kind of like in math, um, if one is greater than, no, if one is less than two, and two is less than three, and three is less than four, then one is less than four. Same basic argument. That is true in math. Mm-hmm. But so the, the claim here is that you come to this conclusion. Self-experimentation leads you to incorrect conclusions. Right? We are not going to endorse this uh, this logical outcome. No, we're going to attack No, it. we are not going to endorse this outcome of logic. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. So in, in this kind of logical analysis game that we play, you can either dispute the premises, uh, that's those first statements, or you can show that the conclusion doesn't follow, right? So... In this case, just based on the form of the argument, the conclusion has to follow if you accept the premises. So that means that we can attack each of those premises as points of vulnerability. And the way that we do that is to solve self-experimentation being too reliant on your subjective experiments, we can reduce our reliance on subjective experience. And the way we do that is to develop our skills of perception because what we experience subjectively it shades over into objectivity when we're careful about how we're perceiving and how we're recording our perceptions. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. So that's the first key. The next one is, okay, so your subjective experience is susceptible to cognitive bias. We accept that as reality, but we can reduce our susceptibility to the cognitive bias if we are more reflective about what we're thinking about, right? We can overcome cognitive bias, at least a little bit if we have some cognitive discipline. <laughs> right, or, or cognitive awareness, or like bias awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then with the last idea that when we have cognitive bias that always leads to incorrect conclusion, well, we can work to justify our conclusions more thoroughly. And making connections and discerning patterns and things, that can help us to become more certain in what we conclude. So those are the skills we're gonna work on, perception, reflection, and connection. Okay, so if we start with perception here, uh, the basic idea is that uh, there are some skills that we can put in play here to get better results. And it f starts with sensory skills. Because this is where uh, these, are the, these are like the borders. Our senses are the borders of our, our internal interaction with the outside world. And we can also get some sense of what's going on inside of ourselves as well with this. Right? So first about sensory skills. Generally, when we think about a measurement or some kind of assessment, we figure if it can be tested and communicated and especially reproduced, then we call that a more objective, right? Um, and when we do that, like, we gotta remember, every time we do this, every time you look at a microscope or you, like, take a reading with a tool, um, there is a perception that's being involved here, right? It's like you've got a position on a gradient. You've got a density of amount of cells in a, in a sample, then you're counting them, right? And mm -hmm. you're putting a number down. 
or we measure some molecules in your body and we look at their ratios and we say like, oh, you've got bad cholesterol because the L number is too high and the H number is too low. (laughs) And we, we do these kind of things all the time. So these are perceptions. They're given specificity and all of that, but they are perceptions in the end. Measurement is a perceptive act, right? A microscope, a stethoscope, an assay, a mic- whatever it is. These, these are tools that we use to extend our perceptions or to enhance them. So when we reach a threshold where we've got enough breadth or enough depth going on in what we're, we're measuring and perceiving and putting together, we, we call it a measurement. But that doesn't change the action. It doesn't change the nature of what we're doing here. And the thing is that there are these external tools that we rely on but there are also internal tools, right? Think about meditation traditions. They've taught for ages all around the world in their, in their own unique ways that perception is something that you have to practice and develop in order to rely on it or to trust it at all, or at least to be able to see the places where it's trying to trick you mm. more, more commonly or more readily, right? So um, we can work with that kind of tool and we can take internal measurements, right? we can approach some kind of, um, we can get closer to that threshold between the subjective and the objective. So to bring this down to earth a little bit, if we can engage in these disciplined efforts to become more perceptive of what's going on in our own body, then we can learn to detect its responses to our actions. And that can be a guide for us when we're thinking about what do we want to do next? What do I want to change about my habits? I want to just insert a little fly in the ointment here because you sort of started that part off by talking about um, being able to reproduce an experiment. Mm -hmm. And um, when we are self-experimenting, there can be a little problem with reproducibility, simply because let's say that you're experimenting with something that begins to help you a lot. now it's going to be hard to reproduce that experiment because your body's not the same anymore. And so sometimes um, it, it isn't that it isn't that that's going to like corrupt your data or anything like that. It's just that we need to be aware of how the environment in which the experiment is happening is changing as we are doing the experiment. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that can happen is, you know, changing the diet is a really easy example, an easy framework to work in here. So let's say that a person stops eating gluten um, or stops eating, you know, gluten and dairy, whatever, stops eating something that they have a food sensitivity to. And they stop for for a while and then they eat some and they have really, a really strong reaction, a bad reaction. And then they're like, whew, okay, that's data. I'm, I'm glad to know that. Mm. And then they stop for a while longer and they eat some again and they have a bad reaction. And they're like, whoop, data, okay, that's, that's good. And every time they do it, maybe they stopped eating it for an entire year or three years. And then they had a little bit and the reaction was nowhere near as bad. That doesn't necessarily mean oh, surprise, I'm not allergic to gluten anymore. I got over it. (laughs) I don't have that sensitivity anymore. I got over it, right. Um, What it might mean is over time, my body has healed enough that it can handle a little bit of insult to the system. It can handle a little bit of contamination by this thing that I'm sensitive to more gracefully than I used to be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. So 
maintaining that kind of awareness around the reproducibility of the experimentation is important. It doesn't mean that the experiments aren't valid or any of those things. It just means to be mindful of the way in which the experiment itself is progressing as we continue to do work on it. Yeah. Mindfulness is a really key word here, you know, and I, I think about, um, about mindful eating as a tool that's really helpful and, and moves in this direction, right? You know, mindful eating, you could say it's like, well, eat when hungry and choose the right foods for your body. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that's easy. <laughs> that sounds so simple, right? Um, but, <laughs> but there's a little more to the story, right? You know, when we do mindful eating, one of the goals is to pause for a moment and, before we eat anything and to ask myself, like, am I actually hungry right now? is this the right food for me or is this the best food that I want to be eating in this moment? And to consider it for a moment and then decide, right? And it sounds small. It sounds like how could such a, a little act make any difference? But if you really dedicate to doing it every single time, and not just when you eat food, but also when you're going to go shopping mm. um, or other times you're going to interact with food, um, then it can really help. And there, of course, there can be pitfalls to this. You know, sometimes you only get guilty messages when you check in with yourself. Yeah. And there can be lots of damage around that. But um, I mean, I think some compassion around this particular exercise is really important. Yeah. I know that even just over the last um, six months, as I've been trying to deal with the way that I eat emotionally and that I eat when I'm stressed, um, I, I definitely went through a phase of... I acknowledge that I am not actually hungry right now and that I'm going to eat this gluten-free waffle because it is comforting mm -hmm. and I will not shame or guilt myself for that. Right. right. Like there is a way to, to acknowledge all of the things and not hurt yourself. Yeah. Um, and eventually the more that I, um, the more that I felt emotionally supported and emotionally in a place of more healing, the more that I was able to say, actually, I think I'll save that waffle for tomorrow mm -hmm. or whatever. And so, um, you know, they're, they're like, there is this Goldilocks place of, of simply, oh, we could be objective here. <laughs> simply <laughs> objectively saying, yes, I am, I would like this waffle for comfort food and I'm going to eat it and enjoy the comfort that it provides right, right. without putting any kind of guilt or shame yeah. on it because that gets into our bias. Like, oh, if I'm, if I'm comfort eating, then I am bad. Well, your goal here wasn't to never eat waffles again, right? It was to yeah. like get a little more control over your sugar cravings. Right, and stuff right, like that. right, right, right. Or know? even just, even just building awareness around it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So basically we're taking something that had been automatic the way that we choose food, the way that we, you know, snack or whatever else. Um, we're taking something that had been automatic and, and reconsidering it and reassessing it and trying to put a little kind of stop in that moment or a little mm -hmm. break to say, hang on, let's be conscious about this. Let's be intentional about it. Um, Even and, if you are intentionally eating the waffle. Yeah, absolutely. No, if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to have <laughs> snacks, you should be enjoying them all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like the whole, the whole time, you know? Yeah. So, you know, but the idea is that over time, the need to make that intervention so fully, so consciously, uh, it, it diminishes, right? Mm. As the, the new way of eating or the new, the new selection of options, you know, on the literal menu, uh, becomes more, more home for you, yeah. right? More, more reactive or more natural. Um, so, you know, that, that passes over and now it just becomes a, a reaction or, or a preset. 
Um, and the nice thing here is that mindfulness about some area of your life, whether it's food or it's about your movement habits or it's about the herbs you work with, that develops over time into intuition about that area of your life, right? Intuition is a skill. It's something that you can understand intellectually, something that you can initially learn just by focusing your attention, but it's something that operates efficiently and more effectively if you practice it to the point where it becomes more instinctual and more of a reaction than, than something that you have to choose consciously to do, right? When I think so, about intuition, I really like to equate it to muscle memory. That's In exactly what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Intuition is a trained thing. It is not like the message I'm getting from the universe is that I should have kale. That, but that, that intuition is you know, how we take our experience, we take our awareness, and we train ourselves with it so that literally just like a musician who has trained themselves like a, a highly skilled piano player or whatever who has trained their fingers to know exactly where everything is and they don't even have to look anymore, it is that same thing but on the mental sort of plane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think I love to think about these things as skills because it has that idea, you know, I almost want to repeat myself here, but it, just the idea that you could learn this and just think your way through it and like push your muscles through it in the in the order that you need to but that when you practice it more often it becomes more more of an instinct right mm. i think about martial arts in this context um that was one of the first places i really had an experience like that the first time you learn how to you know throw a punch or to you know grab or, or whatever else you're like okay I, you're looking over at the teacher you're like i do it like this Wait, <laughs> yeah. where does my finger go you know all that kind of stuff um, but then eventually you do it enough times that it will just happen and it can happen spontaneously. Mm -hmm. So that same is true, you know, with, um, with herbal formulation, with constitutional assessments, you know, it's true for these kind of clinical skills. Um, but, uh, you know, the reflection of those is, is an ind individual's life in like, how do you select herbs for your body? How mm -hmm. do you, um, how do you figure out what your, what your needs are today, right? Assess your own constitutional pattern. Right, or your own tissue state pattern as those change. So it's about pattern recognition, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and again, it, it can be conscious, it can become semi-conscious, it can shade over to becoming unconscious, but it is about perceiving those things and then and then identifying and recognizing those patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's a, that's a critical perceptual skill. Um, we can also think about the ability to be aware of what's going on inside your own body. Um, call it like interoception. Um, and with that, I think one of the key important things to think of there, especially in the realm of herbalism, is about using your senses as a, as a kind of a chemistry set, right? So when you smell your herbs, when you taste them, when you um, experiment with 12 different bitters um, mm. and line them up and taste one after another, you're developing these, this kind of sensory perceptual skill in a, in in a completely literal way. Right? Mm, mm -hmm. um, but that has consequences for your ability to to perceive other things that are happening um, in what you eat and what you consume and, and drink, but also inside of your own body as well. Right. And, you know, that that inside of your own body awareness also is trainable. That is a, a key aspect of certain types of meditation practices, mm -hmm. you know, just to start to recognize oh, I feel the muscles in my belly clenching up. That's a tension response. That's a stress response. Mm -hmm. um, what am I responding to in my environment right now? Um, you know, or, oh, I feel um, my breath 
speeding up or my heart speeding up. That's a stress response. What mm. do I need to do to, to manage that right now? Those kinds of awareness. You know, a lot of times, and this was true in my life, and a lot of times you maybe you eat the thing, you feel terrible, but that does not actually equate to awareness of what's going on. Yeah. It's just like, whatever, I, I eat and then I feel bad. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort of takes more introspection to think like, hold on, I eat and then I feel bad. That's not right. Like, I, I would prefer <laughs> not to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Right. And, you know, oftentimes these, these inner senses are, are somewhat outside of our awareness, you know. But, but like you say, this is something you can train, you can develop to, to be aware of it and to be more specifically aware of it as well. You know, one thing I would think of is the way that we label our sensations. Um, you know, a lot of times it's like, well, I, I feel pain. Mm. Okay. As an herbalist, that's not quite enough for me to work on it yet. You know, even yeah. if we're saying we've got digestive pain, which part of your digestion do you feel it in? Way up here, up top, up high in the belly or up in like near the, where the ribs come together or like way down low, down in your belly, mm-hmm. um, close to your pelvis. That's going to make me choose different plants. Is it feel sharp and, and local and, and tight or is it that things are kind of roiling and bubbling all around in there? Or is there like a big lump that won't move, you know? So those are going to make us pick really different plants. And um, that is about not just perceiving that there's a discomfort, but what kind of discomfort. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we often turn to the, the kind of tissue state or energetics language for that. Is it a hot or a cold sensation? Is it tense or is it too loose? You know, like Mm. that, that terminology is very helpful. And again, especially for an herbalist, it's helpful because if we can start to identify the problem in those terms, it leads us naturally to the, to the herbal solutions. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, Maybe one other thing there that, that with those terms, there is also very little value statement tied up in them. Uh, So like, I feel pain, it's bad. Um, I feel pain. I don't like it. Like those aren't, those aren't, those may be true. Feel pain. Can I kill it? Yeah. <laughs> may, yeah. The, all that might be true, but it isn't um, actionable information. And if we can, if we can get to a place that doesn't have a value statement and just simply say, I feel pain and it is stabby. Mm-hmm. All right. I can work with that. You yeah. know, that's something that I can do something about. And it, it can be very difficult to get close to those things inside of our own bodies. It's, it is not comfortable. We would prefer to avoid them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, having those words, those just basic, like, does this feel like everything has slowed down and is stagnating? Or does this feel like everything is rushing too fast through my body? You know, that those, those types of descriptions that don't have any value statement attached to them, they are simply a, a, an observational description of what's happened, can allow us to approach discomfort in our own bodies um, in a, in a more like, in a less uncomfortable way, <laughs> like in a more mm. compassionate way for ourselves. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So, you know, perception is, comes first and then the next step here is reflection, right? So I like to think about words cause we're that kind of nerd. Um, so <laughs> reflection, flexion is like flexing and it's like bending. So reflecting is like bending back. And, you know, backbends require some flexibility. Yes. That's, that's necessary for us. So when we're reflecting on what we experience, we don't want to get too uh, too stubborn about it. Too tight, too <laughs> yeah. rigid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reflecting is kind of like recording, you know. 
we want our recordings to have a lot of detail, a lot of uh, fidelity. Um, fidelity is like how close is it to the original. Um, that's going to give us the most information. But reflection is also kind of like recollection, right? We use that word for memory. But if you break that down, well, when we collect things and then we recollect them, bring them back <laughs> together, right? We're, we're kind of reconstituting. We're like bringing some, some pieces together. Um, and then we need to glue them a little bit. <laughs> so there's something that's kind of added to help them stick together, help them fit together, together. And it might prevent them from having the same kind of range of motion they did before. This is really just to say that when we remember things, we don't always remember them as clearly as uh, we think we do. Yes. <laughs> right? There's an inertia to our, our recollections in that they tend to emphasize only certain like recurring surface patterns, the ones that are most familiar and that have the deepest grooves in our brains. Um, and we diminish or dismiss things that are less common or more complex. So when we're keeping records to help us with reflective work, we want them to be information rich enough uh, that they can combat that kind of inertia. And that if, if there is a salient detail, then we're not gonna lose it in the, in the shuffle. So, you know, records can help us this, uh, this way a lot. We talk about um, health journals these days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we struggled with a lot of words over the years. It started with food journal. Um, you know, or like a diet diary or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then it was like, no, that's not big enough, right? It's like, for a while I was like, well, your into intake output log, and that didn't work at all because <laughs> <laughs> people aren't machines. Um, so, you know, a health journal, something like that. Uh, we could just say a record of what's going on for you. And I think, I think that's good because not everybody is interested in or, or needs to make a diet change, but they still right. need to keep some records about, about changes they make if they're going to, you know, uh, get rid of all the furniture in their house and see if their backache goes away next month. <laughs> <laughs> if they're going to, you know, meditate for 10 minutes every morning and see if they have 20% fewer arguments well, and, <laughs> with and their best the, friends. The reason <clears throat> that the recording is so important, regardless of what we call it or what it is that we're recording, is because how many arguments is 20% fewer arguments? Humans forget. Like, we, we normalize based on the moment. Mm -hmm. And... And on top of it, to make it even worse, we be, we develop habits in the way that we tell our story. So on one hand, um, you know, when pain was at a seven or an eight, that was normal. And when people said, how are you doing? We said, uh, I'm in pain, but thanks for asking. And we habitualized on that response. And so mm -hmm. when later pain drops down to a four, but, but we're habituated to our identity of I'm in pain, mm -hmm. but thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy to, to see the progression of, hold on a second, I'm only at a four now. If it happens in one jump, it's easier for us to acknowledge. Yeah. But if it happens slowly over the course of a month or whatever, it's very hard for us to acknowledge that. It's very hard for us to say, holy cow, my pain has reduced by whatever percentage it is to go from seven to four, because um, math. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this is why recording is so important. And honestly, even why the way that we choose to record things is important, because what does a seven really mean or mm. a four? Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about symptom scores in a moment. Um, but first, like, when we're taking a record, if say it was just uh, as general as possible, you're you're trying a whole bunch of different changes and interventions, and you want to track how, how things are unfolding in, in a lot of dimensions, right? 
So ideally, um, we'd have a record that in includes your food, your drinks, your medications, supplements, herbs, uh, what happens when you go to the bathroom, uh, if you menstruate, how that goes down for you, and daily stuff, like what your sleep is like, and how your movements are in a day. Like, did you have a lot of movement? Did you have a big workout? Did you exercise? Or were you very sedentary? So that kind of stuff. Also, your emotional state. Um, and uh, all, all those kind of factors can be worth tracking and can be indicators for how your health is doing, you know, or if things are moving in the right direction. Um, but it's really helpful to start this record before you make changes because that will help you establish a baseline. Yes. Yeah. And then to just do that, again, without value statements. You don't have to write down, oh, my God, I eat Cheetos every day. I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. Or, wow, I'm only getting five hours of sleep a night. What what an undisciplined person I am. Like, none of that. So just like, oh, this right. is what's happening right now. This just is. It just is what's happening right now. Yeah. So to break it down, you could write down in your record everything that goes in, right? So that's food, drinks, snacks, candy, <laughs> herbal supplements, vitamins. But may maybe also <clears throat> media, mm -hmm. maybe uh, emotional exchanges, mm -hmm. all, all that kind of yeah. how much sleep went in. All that stuff that goes in. Yeah. yeah. When we're doing a diet analysis, we're going to um, often care a lot more about like the ingredients list than like the number of calories. Uh, right. You know, it's going to depend on your goals and, and what it is you're tracking and changing and so on. But um, and it's going to um, depend on your own comfort level with this type of tracking. Exactly. So definitely finding a system that allows you to track the data that you need, but that but that does not um, like engage feelings of guilt or shame for you. Yeah. There's so, there are so many ways to track um so, so fun, you know, doing a little experimentation to find one for you that does not bring up any kind of negative mm -hmm. self-talk. Yeah. We also track things that come out. So, yeah, that's, you know, you're in feces. <laughs> uh, and like you said, it's also emotionally things that emerge from you. Right? Yes. So uh, if there are feelings of, of anxiety or fear or discomfort or happiness or joy or elation that mm -hmm. are coming out of you, then, you know, it's good to keep a, a check in on that as well. Um, yeah, including everything you feel, your physical state, headache, stomach ache, tennis elbow, whatever, um, <laughs> and your emotional state, your psychological state, um, include those as well, right? Make notes about that. We also want to track how much you sleep, um, uh, when you sleep and also how, how much you sleep, right? The quality of the sleep is helpful to know if you woke up in the night, if you had dreams, um, those kind of things are really critical. And then other details about your day, right? Like you had extra work to do. There were there was crunch time. Uh, you went and had a had a workout. You got a visit from a, a family member. Um, there was a national lockdown. <laughs> you know, like all of these things might be worth uh, including. Anything that's going to affect you physically or emotionally, right? Also, like if you got in a car accident or if you think you got food poisoning or whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. Make notes about that kind of stuff. This will be useful when we're doing um, connective work in the next step. Okay, so um, if you're also dealing with a persistent health problem um, or a recurring health problem like that, then you're going to want to include some kind of note about how that's going as well, right? And again, this is because we have an amazing capacity to forget the extent of our pain once it's passed. Um, so it's easy to, to have a problem and then to do something that's actually improving it, uh, but maybe, like you said before, it happens slowly, it occurs over some time. 
And so from day to day, the changes aren't perceptible. Yeah, the improvement doesn't really register. Mm -hmm. And then you might write it off. You might say, ah, this isn't worth doing. Mm -hmm. right? So keeping some record of the severity that you're experiencing a symptom helps you to recognize when a, a change is, is having a therapeutic effect. Um, so again, that's why we want to make an inventory or take a baseline reading before we start to make changes. Um, take a note about any complaints you're hoping to address. Like, I've got this eczema on my elbow, I have brain fog every day, I get headaches, you know, a few times a week, and, and make a note about how often that is and how, how intrusive it is into your daily life. Yeah. You know? I really like it that way. I like it to be narrative instead of numbers. And I mean, okay, I'm a person who likes words, so mm -hmm. that's what I like. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think that I have a migraine three nights a week that causes me to change my plans. Mm-hmm. Um, is something really solid, more solid than a number, because a month from now, if I'm only getting a migraine one night a week that causes me to change my plans, then that's a, that's a very clear change that I can see. It's a big improvement. But if I say my migraines are a seven, a month from now, I don't know. I, f I don't necessarily feel like anything has changed. I've normalized my situation, so maybe there's still a seven. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. If number if a number scale works for you though, please go with it. Like the the point is to go with whatever you work with. But I think that number scales are normalized in this kind of data collection and don't work for a lot of people. So I wanted to to yeah. Show when I'm them. when I'm talking to clients, uh, I'll kind of do a little bit of both. Like I'll ask them to give me a scale on a on a on a scale of one to ten. Um, where one is like least troublesome and 10 is most severe, right? You have to specify that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll do that. But then I'll also like record some of the things they say about it. You know, like if they're saying that it's so bad I couldn't work or it's so bad I couldn't sleep or mm. it happens every, every week or whatever, then, then yeah, that's going to, um, be really helpful to, to record down and then check in again later. So when we're, when you're checking with your record though, this is the time to put those perceptive skills to work, right? Tune in to your body. Take a moment to turn your awareness inside. Take stock of what's going on. Reflect on how that feels compared to what it's been like in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea here is that if you keep good quality records that has details that are going to be relevant to what you're doing, um, then you're going to have all the material you need to make connections between those data points. Or, like, to challenge your own bias. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you have recorded... I get a migraine three nights a week that causes me to change my activities. And then a month from now, you look at that. You, a month from now, you might be thinking, oh, nothing has really changed. But when you look at that data that you've collected, it, it, it corrects for your bias. Mm -hmm. Because now you're able to say, hold on a second. I am not getting a migraine three nights a week. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this is a way of saying like, well, yeah, humans are, are, you know, biased and subjective and all those other things that a logician would say, uh, <laughs> means that we're doomed and means we can that never we're doomed, do this for Right. But we're we not, we're ourselves. not. When you write it clearly, when you gather the data clearly and put it in terms that will work for you, which might take a minute to, to figure out correctly or like most effectively when you do that, you are correcting for those implicit biases and everything else. And suddenly you're like, oh, thanks past me for writing this detail because now I can see that in fact there has been a large change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so our next step is to make connections, right? 
and humans humans are really good at pattern recognition where we're kind of made for it or grown for it i guess um and we to the extent that we trick ourselves you know like the pattern recognition skill is what makes us see faces in clouds or bark patterns or to see a whole scene when they spill ink on paper and say now do you look at this and tell me what, what's the first thing that comes what do to you mind see? <laughs> you know so so humans do that right but you can't recognize a pattern if you're not looking for one um so keeping your record is important but it's not going to help you if you don't go back and analyze it right mm. so um you know on the other hand like you can feel a lot of accomplishment if you make a change for your health right like i'm going to drink this green smoothie for my health every day um, but you can't really have confidence in it unless you can point to some kind of pattern of cause and effect, right? Uh, that's linked right to it. So we put these recognition skills to work, um, and the goal is to quell doubts about the value of your new habit, right? Whether it's your own doubt or the doubt of like your coworkers who are like, why are you, why are you eating that? <laughs> right. Or even better, why are you not eating this? <laughs> yeah. By the way, you don't have to care yeah. that they think that, but sometimes you do. So, yeah, you know. yeah. it can be helpful. So, um, like we said before, if you, if you started your record before you began changes, then you can look for baseline patterns. And if you've got a, you know, a two weeks or even a month of data um, before you start changing your habits, that can be really great. Look back through that record and um, look for some times when things are, are particularly interesting. That could be bad, it could be good, it could be weird. Um, so maybe it's like you look back and say, ah, oh, here's a migraine, here's nausea, here's panic attack, right? Or maybe some good stuff happened, like I made a creative breakthrough this day, I, I smiled at a stranger, my back felt amazing even though I helped a friend move, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, that's good things. It's really, I think this is easy to miss, but it's important to record when things are good. Yes. <laughs> uh, weird could be like, I forgot my coworker's name, or I lost time wandering around on the internet when I was supposed to be working, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's valuable data, actually, that... Mm -hmm. That or, is... or it could even be like, today I had an experience in my emotions that isn't the way I normally do emotions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so those are, worth, those are worth being aware of. And they could be isolated events, or they could be like a flare-up of some chronic thing or some recurring thing, right? Um, you know, today I had a real flare-up with my rheumatoid arthritis, okay? You want to you wanna keep, keep a note on that. But in this case, we're doing a baseline um, assessment, so you're looking back... And you might gather data like, how often did you get a flare-up, right? Or how often was there an isolated event of a headache? Oh, it turns out it's more often than I thought. Actually, this is a chronic problem for me. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're looking for those kind of details. All right. Um, when we found uh, an instance like that, something good, bad, or weird, look for other instances that are just like that. And then... Um, with those gathered together, look at the day that that happened and the days prior as well to see if you can find any differences in what came into you or what came out of you during that time. Like if you changed your workout routine, if you tried out a new restaurant, if you had ice cream for the first time in a month. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, if you, yeah, you know, so, th so those would be the, the kind of connections that we're trying to make in retrospective data, right? And some of those patterns have a really short time frame, like a few hours or a day. Like, I skipped breakfast on Monday, and then I ate a lot of snacks that day, and I, I didn't even realize it. Or I went to bed early on Wednesday, and on Thursday, I got a lot done. Um, you know, other patterns take a longer time, and it's more more kind of like on a weekly basis uh, that you're going to be able to see that recurrence. Every Tuesday, we have this status meeting, and we sit down in these stupid chairs in the conference room for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And then 
uh, you know. And look, every Wednesday my back is shot. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, some some of these patterns happen every month, right? Like uh, I drank nettle and friends every day that month, and my PMS was not as bad as it mm -hmm. is usually. You know, uh, you know things like this. But in in almost all cases, you can find a connection like this. You can find a pattern like that. Okay, now if you did just jump right in, you switched everything around, you started making changes the same day you started keeping your log, don't worry, right? You can still get some good information. But it's still good to take a moment and try to like reflect on what your normal is or had been when you begin that process. Or maybe your baseline. Yeah, your baseline. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Normal so I'm is, not sure that normal is like is... ever really a word that can be applied to humans. <laughs> it's, it's very fraught, yeah. Yeah. So we take some notes um, about your, you know, your existing habits, your existing health status, um, health problems and whatever. Um, and then anything you already suspect makes them makes them better or worse, because that's going to be uh, worth checking in on as you as you go through your changes. So, OK, so we've got some idea about what we're going to change. And, and you probably have some idea of why, you know, you somebody convinced you this was a good idea, whether it was the Internet or your best friend or Dr. Oz know, sometimes or you're just like, us or whoever. <laughs> sometimes you're just like, oh, everybody seems to be doing this. I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's helpful in any way. I'll try mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You know. And usually along with that, there's some idea about what the goal is. Like, why are we doing this diet? You know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, really supportive to joint tissue health, or this is really good for people who get migraines or, or whatever. But I think that, you know, in the ideal version of this process, we, we keep it real general, right? Don't get too caught up in the adjustment of one number or another, whether that's like your, your weight on the scale or your cholesterol counts when you go into the doctor, mm. um, or like how much you can bench press in one repetition <laughs> or whatever else. Like try to see the whole picture. Try to see generalized uh, patterns of, of change. Right? And, and kind of recognize that if you gather data every day and you, and you make a point on the graph for that, that it, from day to day it may go a little up and a little down, but over the course of a month you can draw a line that goes through. Right. Like you've seen that the yeah. graph picture that I'm trying to describe here. Mm -hmm. So even though from day to day there may be a little bit of jaggedness, in general the trend is going in a particular direction that yeah. you like or don't like. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and if we when we have this kind of more general approach, we're not going to be worried too much about isolating variables, right? Where we're trying, like isolating variables is where you want to know the like, What's the power factor of this one specific intervention apart from everything else in my life, right? Um, the individual effect of each of each of the changes you make, right? You would only do that. You would only try to isolate those variables if you were trying to, to learn something super specific. Like, if I reduce my sugar intake by 100 grams a day, do I get a, a two-point reduction in my A1C number, or is it six points? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and you would say, well... Who cares unless that's like you've really focused on that as the only thing that matters. Or if I take, you know, three squirts of Hawthorne tincture three times a day, uh, how much does that reduce my, my incidence of heart palpitations? That, that might be interesting, but it's not really our goal here. Our goal is to feel better. Yeah. Our goal is to, to be more comfortable <laughs> in our day, right? Um, and, and ideally to do that pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. So if we if we make multiple simultaneous changes, that's going to be more effective. It's going to be less precise, less isolated, but you can always rechallenge some individual pieces later to sort out which ones are are really most critical, or if you have some Wh kind of doubt or whatever. Which ones are most worth putting your energy towards? Mm -hmm. 
But it's so much easier to do that kind of a challenge when you feel better. That So, okay, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and change 10 things. And I'm going to see how that improves my life. And then later I might say, boy, all 10 things every day takes up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm feeling better, I'd honestly like to use that time for something else. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, can I get away with five things instead of 10 it's easier to do that kind of experiment than it is to say, if I do one thing, will I feel better? Mm-hmm. You know, like feel better first and then figure out how much can you vary from yeah. what got you there. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we do it. Um, it can also help, uh, you know, if you decide to embark on a change, like make a note on that, put big stars on it in your record that day. Like today begins the gut heel tea experiment, <laughs> you know, and you're going to, and be clear about what the experiment is. Like, I'm going to drink a quart of gut heel tea made with these herbs at this strength every day for this next month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and keep track about how well you stick to your goal um, in addition to the other things you're putting in your daily health record. Right, because, because it's really easy to say, I'm going to drink a quart of gut heel tea every day and then actually only manage to succeed once a week. And then at the end of the month, say, eh, it re- wasn't really worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't really know. You only actually did it once a week. It mm-hmm. was your plan to do it every day, but it didn't actually happen that way. Yeah. But honestly, yesterday I texted a friend and I was like, literally the last time I texted you was one week ago today, except it feels like it was yesterday and I have no idea where that week went. Mm-hmm. Like that's so, yeah. that's, that is such a common occurrence for humans that it's very easy to say I'm going to do something every day and then it turns out you actually only did it once a week. Yeah. yeah. So, so keep your data. Yep. Keep yourself accountable. And, you know, you can tell other people. They'll help, they'll help keep you accountable. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's, compassionately, that's but probably too. not. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now we've done, we've done the work, right? We've uh, collected some baseline data. We've made some changes. We're, we're keeping it, it up for a while. And now we're going to start making connections, right? So you've made your changes. You've made your sleeping space dark, you've gone soy-free, you walk 30 minutes a day, whatever the change was, and then you stuck with it for long enough for your body to adjust, right? Which could be 30 months, 30 days, it could be... Uh, it could be 30 months. <laughs> it could be. I'm actually, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we're going to evaluate for effect, right? And this is the same process as what we did when we were looking for those baseline patterns, right? Review the record for the whole period of the experiment, look for those good, bad, and weird spots, Um, keep a particular eye out for the symptoms you were hoping to see change, uh, if there were any, any specific things, um, note the frequency, note the symptom scores, look for impressions that you wrote down that day or or quotes that you wrote to yourself about how you were feeling and then, you know, assess whether they changed, you know, uh, look for general trends. Are you feeling good more often than, than not, uh, more often than you were when this began? Are your energy levels higher? Things like that can also be helpful to, to keep a note on. And it's really good, like I said, to compare your condition now after like a month of your experiment to where you were at baseline um, uh, before anything changed at all. Once you've seen those trends and those patterns, then usually a conclusion is fairly simple, <laughs> right? If your complaints have lessened, uh, your, your discomforts <laughs> have mm-hmm. lessened. Um, if a previously deteriorating condition has stabilized or even started to turn around, that's really good. If you've gotten more done, if you felt less stressed, if you're meeting whatever your definition of health is, then your change is working, right? Mm-hmm. It's pointing in the right direction. So if it is working, then stick with it. Uh, and if it's not, then, well, you can turn your attention to other options. 
um, you could adjust it. And if you're not sure, then you do have some choices here. Maybe you could eliminate some confounding variables. Maybe you could keep on going for another, another month or another, another period of time to see if the effects are going to emerge with a little more patience. Um, or just call it undecided and focus on other things that are more obviously helpful. You could also maybe change the data that you're collecting. Mm. Maybe if you don't see a, a certain outcome one way or the other, maybe there isn't an outcome one way or another. It could be undecided, but it's worth also looking at, well, what data am I collecting? Mm. Am I actually collecting what I need to know to be able to make that decision? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And when I record my data, am I working with my perceptive skills to yeah. make sure that I'm really, you know, getting down to the root of it? Um, try not to let it become too rote. Like, okay, I just fill in these things. I check these boxes. Now I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> right? Try to avoid that when we're working with the record. So again, making space for this to, to happen is really critical. But that's the process, right? We perceive, we reflect, we connect. We practice our skills of intuition and interoception and our mindfulness skills. And then we keep a record that accurately reflects our, our food, our feelings, our exercise, our experience. And then we look for those health patterns at our baseline and after making changes to see whether we're having the, these effects we want. So um, a couple of things we just want to say about practicalities here that can make it go more smoothly. First of all, um, well, you want to keep a record, so you have to know where, <laughs> right? right. Um, classically, we've done this in small notebooks, something that you can always have with you, that you can carry with you, um, and that it's just easy to, to, to check in with frequently. Mm. Um, nowadays, a lot of folks like apps for this, um, including us. You know, I work with apps for this myself. Um, but find one that, that suits your needs. Feel free to experiment with several variations. Um, different ways of recording recording data and info and everything, mm. um, and and try them out until you find the one that really works for you and really, you know, does what you need. The best method is the one that gathers the most data. Yeah. So try to be really agnostic about what is best, mm. and instead look and see like how do I actually successfully gather the most amount of data, whatever that way is. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, with our phones, we like to avoid letting them give us notifications and things mm -hmm. um, that are distractible. But uh, we do like to have alerts <laughs> or like alarms um, yeah. to set up some alarms on the phone that say, hey, did you write in your notebook today? Did you check in with your right. record, your health log? Right. Yeah. I don't want my phone to interrupt me, but I'm perfectly happy to interrupt myself later using my phone as a tool to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Set a little alarm that, that goes off and says, hey, future me, make sure you write in your thing today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Track those changes. Yeah. Um, next key point is to stick with your changes long enough to know if they're working. You know, unless, of course, you experience some adverse effect. <laughs> you know, you started drinking, you know, cayenne tea and suddenly said, I'm a little too hot. I need to readjust <laughs> my formula here. All right. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, right. Um, if you give up after too short a period, that's going to give you false negatives. That's the mistaken impression that it wasn't working when it actually was. Your body needs time to adjust to the new normal, right? If it's like a food allergy chain elimination we're doing, we need at least a month. Um, in a lot of contexts when we're making food changes, it's better to give it a season, mm. um, sometimes even longer. If it's like an exercise regimen that you've shifted up, you're going to feel a difference in your body after just a couple weeks. You know, especially if you're tracking. I mean, that's true, but also, um, you know, that first month, especially if you're a person who has had a very sedentary lifestyle, that first month or even three months, 
it might be like, whew, I am getting used to doing this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's sort of like all uphill and less return. And then suddenly, um, that balance starts to shift as your body comes into being more able to do it and, and sort of sloughs off the sedentarism. I mean, that's true when we eliminate sugar from the diet also. You know, the yeah. first week or two is not fun. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not a reliable indicator of what, you know, the, when you get over the hump, you're going to feel like. Right, you know, right, right, right. It's, yeah, <laughs> very worth doing. It's just you got to get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there so, is a withdrawal aspect. Yeah. So if somebody did a sugar elimination and they were super strict about it, but only for four days, they would say, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> Let's never do I that again. awful. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So stick with your changes long enough to know if they're working. And it can be good, you know, um, with certain interventions like the, you know, sugar elimination to get a sense of what that pattern normally looks like, you know, or what that looks like for most folks. Mm. And then um, just be aware of that. Something we've always liked about the Whole30 diet program is that that uh, timeline article they have. Yeah. Where it says, like, expect during these days to feel kind of like this. Expect a real rough patch around this time. Then it tends to get better from there on. You know, right. like, that's very helpful. And um, Yeah, even if it happens on a slightly different schedule for you, just knowing that those those types of reactions are common mm-hmm. is, is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of herbs, um, they vary pretty widely in, in how long it takes to work with an herb before they hit their effect. But... Um, in a lot of cases, a month is solid. Uh, it's kind of like food, you know, especially yeah. the more food-like herbs give them longer time to really get in there. Yeah, I mean, it sort of also depends on, on the purpose and and the goal and all that stuff. You know, if you are working with um, some blue vervain and motherwort in the moment of having palpitations to try to yeah. calm that down, well, you would expect to see something in that moment, to feel something in that moment. But over the course of a month of doing that work that thing that you feel should be stronger. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 Right. And then also the, you know, if you are working with that herb each time those palpitations happen, then ideally we're also doing some other work, maybe with the same herb, maybe can, you know, concurrently to reduce the frequency that you have that experience in the first place. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, another key point, once you get a good result, don't stop recording, right? Yeah. Like, so, so don't stop believing. Don't stop. Don't stop recording. Don't do it. <laughs> don't stop recording a habit because um, you got to keep that going at least for another full period, like another full month, another full season, something like that. Even if you don't change anything else further, um, especially in the case of herbal medicines or herbal you know remedies you work with, um, you're going to find that the the effect on your constitution is going to need a while to build up, um, and that that's an herb that right at the beginning was like super helpful and just right for you, um, maybe is no longer as necessary, right? So we're, we're making sure we don't overshoot the mark. Um, and just allowing these things to unfold over a little, a little longer period of time and keep an eye on them essentially. Mm. Uh, you know, we've mentioned food allergy eliminations here a number of times. Um, and that's a place where sometimes the results feel inconclusive. Uh, you know, um, where people are just not quite sure if, if it was worth all that effort after all. <laughs> I think that keeping the record is, is probably the single best way to stave that off and give you something to turn to and, and check in to see if it's really moving in the right way. Um, but if you're still not sure, then this is a good place to try a re-challenge, um, especially if the, the doubt you've got is more like 
just because it really tastes good and you crave it and because you're surrounded by images of it all the time. And, right. You know, so go, okay, go ahead, try a re-challenge. And that means after you've strictly eliminated the food allergen from your diet for a full month or two months, go ahead and try eating it again um, in moderate quantities for a few days at a stretch and observe your body's reaction carefully. Um, you may find that symptoms start to reemerge right away, uh, right at the first meal or on, during the first day. Um, it may take a few days for that to appear and to show up. But usually this um, makes the uh, picture pretty pretty clear. When you do that re-challenge, uh, if you have a sensitivity, it does tend to manifest pretty strongly. I also want to say that, um, especially if you are making changes around food, but actually this is honestly, it's true for anything, is mm. that as you are recording um, your data, um, there might be a day that the experiment fails because somebody brought a pie to work mm -hmm. and you ate the pie. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a real inclination to feel shame or guilt um, or defeatedness around that kind of experience. But for me, I think that instead that's data. And I think that's very valuable right along this this concept of a rechallenge. So mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't a planned rechallenge, but still if you are chugging along chugging along, I've been a whole week with no sugar and then suddenly I ate a bunch of sugar, then you're not a bad experimenter. You're you you didn't fail. You aren't a person with no discipline. But instead, you have some data now yeah. that's really valuable data, mm -hmm. um, both about what happened to your body or in your body when that occurred, that incident occurred, but also what it was that led to that to that um, thing happening. Like, what is it that made it happen that I ate the pie that day? Another day, I was able to say no to things, but how come on this day I wasn't able to say no? And, and so that gives you data too. Oh, I was underslept. Oh, I was stressed out. Oh, whatever else. And so my ability to, to make choices based on my goals was lowered because I was stressed out or I was tired or whatever. So all the way around... Um, you have, you're, you're gathering data, even if, uh, what we will call a rechallenge happened during a part of the experiment that wasn't planned for a rechallenge, right? Yeah. So if you, if you keep it in that sort of a framework, then that will spare you spiraling into, oh, I'm no good at this. Um, mm. because you, you are good at this. Like life happens and things change. And it is really just about recording that data and making observations about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful actually. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, one other point here is if you find something that really, really works and you're just like, ah, oh, this is the best thing ever. Take a breath. Remember that your self-experimentation means that your conclusions don't go any further than your own experiment experience, <laughs> right? Um, and you try not to give in to the temptation to generalize, to stay open to new information, to people experiencing that same process very, very differently. Mm. Um, you know, if you feel solid in your own experience here, and, and you can because you've done the work now, then you don't need to feel challenged when somebody else reacts differently. When they right. say... Oh, I tried that and it didn't work for me at all. I, I can't believe you're doing it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, everybody is different. And <laughs> you put in the time and effort to find what works for you. 
and it doesn't have to work for anybody else if it's working for you. Um, and maybe it would work for other people, but they're not in a place right now to try it or it isn't available to them for whatever reason. It isn't accessible to them for whatever reason because of resources or because of time or energy levels or a million factors. And so the only thing that matters here is how you feel in your body, how you get through your day. Um, and, and not about like, well, if Susie doesn't also do this, then I must be wrong. You know, no, mm -hmm. you did the work. If it's working for you, it's working. Mm -hmm. So there we are. All right. We've talked about self-experimentation. We broke it down a little bit, looked at some of the key skills that we need to do this. So this, this is absolutely critical to all of the work that we do, um, particularly Katya and I, you know, I, I won't speak for all of the herbalists in the world out there, um, <laughs> but this is really critical to the, the work that we do, the way that we think about herbalism and how it intersects with other healthy habits um, and the way that we try to teach and, and offer herbalism to everybody. Um, you know, you'll hear us say all the time that, that there's a lot of individual variation and that you've got to try it yourself and don't believe anything we say until you <laughs> feel it in your own body. And, yeah. and you know, it's all, it's all based on the importance of these kinds of practices. Yeah, this is definitely what we teach our students and clients to do, but also like what we do in our own lives too. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so... Also, I can't believe how late I am to the party here, because when you were talking about this being a podcast topic for this week, I was like, oh, that sounds great. Sure. And I'm only just now recognizing that, like, hey, look, it's two weeks before the end of the year. It's two weeks before everybody's going to be starting their New Year's resolutions. Mm -hmm. Like, you could get your baseline data and mm -hmm. then press it. Like, you planned that. Start now. Collect, get, the, <laughs> get that health record set up, you know, start collecting some data. Um, think about some changes and, uh, you know, honestly, this kind of thing can make your, if we want to talk about it in the context of new year's resolutions, I think a lot of them fail because people are like, I don't know, is this even worth it? Right. <laughs> right? right. And this is, this is the way we answer that question. Right. Hmm. Right. Well, um, very clever of you too, to have planned this for today. Aha. Aha. All right, folks. So, uh, that's it for us for 2020. Thank you for listening to us this year. And, um, we're really just delighted to be speaking to you and to, yeah. to be in your ears as you're, you know, out there harvesting herbs or wandering around digging snow or whatever or it is. Or in you your house, around. not doing the things that you wish you were doing. Whatever, yeah. really. It's been a whole 2020. Yeah. 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 So thanks for being with us. We'll be back next year. Year. With some more <laughs> Holistic Herbalism podcast. Until then, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Drink some Drink tea. Drink some tea. Bye. Bye-bye.